welcome. Uh, good evening. Uh, sorry for the delay. We were uh, chit-chatting on the way here, and uh, I think uh, time got, uh, got the best of us. Um, <clears throat> uh, I want to welcome you to tonight's lecture on, financial, uh, on the future of financial reform in China. And it is my pleasure to introduce to you uh, Howard Davis, uh, a man who really doesn't need an introduction at the LSC, um, <clears throat> but he, she's going to get one anyway. Uh, my name, uh, I'm the person who needs to be introduced. My name is Lawrence Saez. I'm at the Asia Research Center. <clears throat> uh, tonight's lecture, I think, is, is really an informal follow-up to last week's lecture uh, by Jiaxin Huang, uh, uh, mostly dealing with the, with the prospects for, uh, for the continuation of economic growth in China. Uh, in my own work, uh, as academic work, I've examined, examined some of the several ch severe challenges that the banking system in China and India face, uh, and also have uh, looked at the issue of, so of barriers to entry in the financial services industry. And as, as I think those are quite pertinent to tonight's topic. Um, I have gone to, so far as to predict a banking crisis in, uh, in China, which is probably something that he's not going to predict, but, uh, and, and that perhaps may not hold in reality. But at least I don't live in the world of reality. So uh, uh, <clears throat> tonight's speaker is Howard Davis, and he deals with the reality of running the the LSC, uh, a post that he has, been, uh, he has held since uh, uh, September of 2003. This is entirely my own opinion, um, speaking on my own, but, I, but I, others share the same viewpoint, but I think that he's doing a great job uh, with the school, running the school. I'm not saying this because he's my boss. I'm saying this because this is my personal view. Um, he has, I think that as a political scientist who studies issues of reform, uh, I've been impressed by his ability to introduce changes, uh, relatively important changes to the school, the way that the school runs. And uh, he hasn't really met that much of an opposition, either from students, from staff, from uh, faculty that tend to be uh, troublemakers in many parts. And this is something that, is, is, that distinguishes the LSC uh, from other institutions of, the, of its caliber. Uh, so I really commend him for that. And I would especially I'd like to uh, uh, draw attention to his efforts, uh, very successful efforts to, uh, to establish links with China and uh, to, uh, with India. Prior to coming to the LSC, Howard was uh, the chairman of the Financial Services Authority. And uh, I mean, I have many friends in the financial services industry, many in the uh, institutional investors. These are people who really despise, uh, who are allergic to, uh, to regulation and to regulators. Uh, but they have very good things to say about Howard Davis's tenure uh, as chairman of the, of, uh, of the uh, Financial Services Authority. So it really speaks uh, very, uh, very much, at least in my mind, uh, about the way that others uh, have uh, viewed him. I mean, I could go on and on about his accomplishments, but. I think at some point even he would find that to be uh, tedious. So uh, we'll just get on with the program. Uh, tonight, Howard Davis will provide uh, somewhat of an insider's viewpoint on, on developments in the financial services, uh, financial reform in China, uh, particularly because he's, he's been in, involved in the, as an International Advisory Council uh, member of the Chi China Banking Reclu Regulatory Commission and the China Securities Regulatory Commission. Uh, so uh, without further ado, I would like you to introduce, uh, to welcome uh, Howard Davis. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening, and uh, thank you for that introduction, Lawrence. You only usually hear that uh, from academics in the week or two before the remuneration committee meets, uh, but uh, I'll remember uh, for next 
uh, July. Um, this is, uh, in fact, the, the third lecture uh, in a series that I've uh, given at the school, but, of course, as the school community uh, changes, so the audience changes, um, about the progress of financial reform in China. And this is really a personal interest of mine, um, which I have had for, uh, well, over 10 years, I guess, since I was at the Bank of England when I first came across the People's Bank and began to discuss with them the ways in which they should reform their financial system. And as I left the FSA, um, they asked me to join these two advisory councils, one for the CBRC uh, under Liu Ming Kang, who in fact was not educated, sadly, at the LSE, but educated at City University. Uh, and under, uh, well, it was originally Chairman Zhao Xiaochuan, uh, who's the, now the People's Bank Governor, of course, uh, but the other chairman is Chairman Shang Fulin, who is in fact coming to the school to speak um, in about a month's time to talk about. So you will get a, those who are interested in this subject will get a first-hand view uh, from him, I think, on November the 17th or some, somewhere around that. Um, however, I ought to say straight away that what I say does not uh, reflect the views of the Chinese official sector. I am not uh, entitled to speak on behalf um, of the Chinese government, um, and I think that will become clear as I go along, but it is informed by this rather regular dialogue I have with them. Now, it wasn't um, deliberately organized this way, uh, but if you read your Financial Times this morning, uh, you'd have seen that frenzy as ICBC sets out its stall uh, for shares offer. Um, and the frenzy uh, is, in fact, in Hong Kong. How many people actually here from Hong Kong? Oh, very few. Did you get your bid in for the IPA? No? Oh, well, bad luck. You missed out on a, uh, a frenzy. But actually, it is true to say that the Hong Kong market goes into a frenzy from time to time, uh, even on the most irrational uh, things. And I shall try to discuss whether this frenzy uh, today was irrational um, or not. Now, I wasn't uh, smart enough to be able to time my lecture specifically for this, but it so happens that this is big news at the moment. And those of you who read last week's uh, Economist uh, would have learnt, uh, as they said, that ICBC, they explained the reason for this huge interest in the IPO, is ICBC is a proxy for China itself. Vast, diverse, growing fast, and with extraordinary scope for internal restructuring. I mean, ICBC uh, has 18,000 branches in China, uh, which is actually down at one stage, it had 42,000 branches in China. So this is an enormous uh, institution. As for whether it will be a successful IPO, well, Goldman Sachs clearly thinks so. They bought 5.8% of it for $2.6 billion earlier this year and the estimate is that they will triple their money uh, when the price is fixed. But the economists also said ICBC also reflects the murkier side of life in the Chinese economy. Political considerations often come first, information is unreliable, and openness in the banking system is questionable. Uh, in the case of ICBC itself, only two years ago, the figures suggested that it had 27% of non-performing loans on its balance sheet. Now it reports uh, only uh, 
And uh, we can therefore question just how sound this bank is. But, to quote the economist uh, one last time, the sceptical voices will scarcely be heard amongst the deafening clamour for shares. So my aim tonight, really, will be to set today's frenzy into some kind of context and to explore how far the Chinese system has come towards being a system which can take its place in the world financial system uh, as a whole. After the frenzy of the IPOs and the roadshows of the next week or two, uh, what next? What can we expect to happen to the Chinese financial system uh, in the future? Those are the questions that I'm going to try to throw some light on this evening. Now, a good place to start is to look at the scale of the Chinese financial system in a world context. And China is now becoming a very significant part of the global system. Now, the concept I'm using here of global financial stock, which is one that McKinsey produced figures on, is uh, the total of the liabilities of the world banking system plus the traded value of bonds and equities. So, obviously, the total fluctuates somewhat and you strike it at a particular point. This is struck at the end of 2004. So these figures are pretty by and large, but from that you can see that China is now about 4.5%, or was at the end of 2004, of the global financial system. So it is quite uh, significant. And if you look at the growth rate, the world's global financial stock is growing at about 8% a year, and China's is growing at uh, almost twice that, at uh, about 14% a year. Uh, so it doesn't take um, a mathematical genius to work out that the share um, of China in the global financial system is growing quite rapidly. And also, it's quite interesting to note that China's financial system is already, in one sense, quite well developed. And this is a simple measure of what I've called here financial depth, which is financial stock as a percentage of GDP, which gives you an indication of the degree to which GDP is intermediated, if you like, through the financial system. Again, it's a rather by and large figure. Uh, but it's interesting that the, on this ratio, China is almost as large as the Eurozone uh, and the UK at present. Uh, so in one sense, uh, the Chinese financial system on that measure looks as though it is already quite sophisticated. Usually people are relatively surprised to see uh, that kind of relativity. But um, it is unusual in world terms in that the Chinese system is extremely heavily dependent on banks. Now, if you monitor the this ratio, the percentage of the global financial stock represented by the liabilities of the banking system, you will see that countries uh, in the course of development, uh, this figure typically gradually falls. Uh, the US is only about 19% now, the Eurozone at about 28%. Uh, and in fact, I didn't put the UK on here, but the UK is halfway between the US and Europe on this measure. Uh, as indeed we are on many other things, uh, economic and indeed political. Uh, so 
Um, in this case, however, what is surprising perhaps is that China is so far ahead of India. I mean, India's financial development um, has been more diverse. Um, India's capital markets, both bond market and equity market, have developed more quickly than the Chinese. And the Chinese system remains heavily dependent on banks. This has a number of consequences. One very obvious one is that what happens to the Chinese banks is extremely significant. Uh, it also means, of course, that China's um, banking system is where all of the ups and downs of growth occur. The pressures of the Chinese economy are all to be reflected uh, in the banking system. And the financial system in China does not have the same shock absorbers that other financial systems have. I mean, the good way of thinking about the equity market, as of course if you think about a corporate capitalization, that the share price is what ultimately takes the strain when uh, the economy goes up and down. Um, and in China, uh, there isn't much of an equity buffer. So if you look at that another way, uh, you can see that China's share of global debt markets is really very small indeed at under 1% um, and under 2% of the global equity markets so at the end of uh, 2004. These figures will be produced for 2005 quite shortly, but sadly not quite in time for this lecture. Um, and indeed, I think it's probably fair to say that the uh, distinction between private debt and government debt in China is uh, not quite so rigorous as it would be in other places, as much of what purports to be private debt is actually guaranteed by one state agency or another. So in terms of its share of the banking system, China is over 8% of the world's banking system already, and therefore something which we have to take uh, rather seriously. If we then look at the structure of the Chinese banking industry, uh, roughly, uh, this is how it presents itself. And it's a slightly, well, it's not a slightly, it's a very artificial structure in the sense uh, in that uh, when I first started to take an interest in the Chinese financial system, essentially, it was all part of the People's Bank uh, empire. And the bits that were apparently called commercial banks were really just you know, subsidiaries uh, of the People's Bank. Um, and now you have, uh, above, under the State Council, you have uh, the Central Bank, the People's Bank of China, which has the responsibility for monetary policy and for the currency and for payment systems, uh, clearing and settlement, etc. And the regulatory arm was separated um, three, four years ago. Um, in fact, following uh, a mission which uh, the Chinese sent to the UK for quite a long time to look at the way in which our own financial regulatory system had been changed with the separation from the central bank um, and creation of the FSA as the regulator. Uh, the Chinese have not gone so far yet as to create one regulator. I'll come on to that a bit later. Uh, but they did see some merit in separating the banking regulatory functions from the monetary policy functions. Uh, although, frankly, the separation is still a little bit difficult to manage. Underneath that, there are quite a range um, of what are called uh, commercial banks, though many of them really rather small, um, and um, the policy 
banks, uh, the Development Bank, Export Import Bank, Agricultural Development Bank. I shall not be saying very much about those. And the big story is about the ones in the bottom left-hand corner, the four big state-owned banks, ICBC, the one whose IPO is about to happen, Bank of China, uh, where it's already happened, China Construction as well, Agricultural Bank of China uh, rather behind uh, the others, and indeed uh, an IPO of the Agricultural Bank of China would be pretty heroic uh, at the moment. Um, what's important to note, however, is that although I will concentrate on the state-owned banks, in fact, the urban credit cooperatives and the rural credit cooperatives are really quite um, important, and particularly important for the private sector. Uh, there's a very interesting book called Back Alley Banking, which was uh, recently published by a woman called Kelly Tsai, um, which shows that in the 90s, the urban credit cooperatives provided about three quarters of the funds to China's private entrepreneurs. And the state banks were heavily engaged in funding state-owned enterprises. And she argues that the big banks remain institutionally biased towards lending to state units. And in her book, she quotes a bank director saying, it's safer to make a loan to a state unit than to an individual stranger. Now, this may be one of the worst statements ever made by a banker, uh, because it is quite clear, looking at what's happened to non-performing loans in China, that the most risky thing you could do as a banker was to lend to a state-owned enterprise, uh, and that most of the private borrowers uh, have, in fact, done rather better. But they have been in here. We hear little about these urban credit cooperatives. Uh, the Financial Times never writes about them, but in fact they have been rather important in the development of the private sector. Uh, but um, I'll come on to this cultural uh, bias and this link between the banks and the state-owned enterprises in a minute. Going back to the overall size of the market, um, you can see that the big four do heavily dominate the banking market in China. They have uh, over 90% um, of consumer deposits, uh, nearly 80% of consumer loans. Um, of corporate sector, it's a little bit more diverse, about 70% of corporate deposits and about 80% of corporate loans. And you can see from that that ICBC is uh, the biggest of the lot. So what has been the strategy so far to deal with these big four, which originally were funding channels as part of the People's Bank. Um, that is really what they were. They were not conceived originally, with the exception of the Bank of China, which has always had international operations. They were not really conceived as separate uh, commercial banks. Um, well, the strategy of the government has been fairly uh, straightforward. First of all, to strengthen their balance sheets um, because uh, by the early, by 2001-2002, um, it was clear that these banks could not operate internationally because they didn't have a strong enough capital base. Indeed, uh, it's fair to say they had no capital. In fact, they had strongly negative capital. Uh, because they had non-performing loans on their balance sheets which were larger than the capital which they announced. 
um, and so they didn't meet in any way the Basel standards for internationally active banks. The Chinese clearly wanted their banks to be internationally active and therefore they faced a big problem. How do we turn these big institutions which are by conventional Western standards bust um, into banks which have adequate capital and which can operate internationally? So the first priority was to strengthen the balance sheet. Uh, the second um, was to bring in uh, strategic shareholders to strengthen management capacity um, and to be partners in uh, joint ventures. And then the third um, has been the uh, IPOs in Hong Kong and Shanghai and maybe in due course in London. I think the original strategy was Hong Kong, Shanghai and then New York. Uh, but with Sarbanes-Oxley, that, that now looks rather unlikely. So I think if the banks go anywhere else after Hong Kong, they're likely to come to London. Indeed, there have been some preparatory discussions for that. Um, and that these IPOs were both to raise capital, but frankly, it's not as if the Chinese financial system really needs to raise new foreign capital. I mean, China, as you know, has a trillion dollars of reserves. I mean, it's not exactly short of capital in an absolute sense. Uh, but it wanted the introduction of foreign capital primarily in order to create some elements of market discipline on these banks and to promote corporate governance reform because foreign shareholders would demand independent directors and the paraphernalia of independent boards. So the IPOs are not really a money-raising exercise for the, for the state or they don't need that at all. Um, they're really in order to aid corporate governance reform. Now let's say a bit more first then about this balance sheet strengthening that has been underway and why that was necessary and what the real underlying causes of it are. Now a lot of the, what is written about Chinese banks um, with their huge non-performing loans and some of you will be aware that um, Ernst and Young got themselves in trouble recently by publishing a report which produced a very uh, excitable figure for non-performing loans, which they withdrew. They published the report, I think, about 10 o'clock in the morning and withdrew it at about half past 11. Um, fortunately, the LSE is sharp enough to have been in there in that hour and a half, and I do have a copy of this report. Uh, but um, essentially, uh, the figures about non-performing loans, nobody knows precisely what they are. And one reason why nobody really knows what they are is because of uncertainty about property rights because for a bank uh, the key in terms of its strength of its balance sheet is not just whether people are paying interest on the loans, it's what its recovery will be in the event of default. So what I was interested in as a banking supervisor at the FSA was really what's called the loss given default. It's often called the LGD, the loss given default. In other words, if this loan defaults, what is my loss going to be? In other words, what recoveries have I got? And the key to that is what covenants have I got? What property have I got? And if this company goes bust, do I own the factory? Do I own the land? Etc. And one of the huge uncertainties in China is that what's happened in a lot of cases is that the Chinese banks have lent to a state-owned enterprise, perhaps owned by a municipal government. Um, the the state-owned enterprise has gone bust, has stopped paying debt, 
then the bank has gone along and said, oh, well, that's very interesting. We'll have the factory and the land. Uh, and in fact, the municipal government has said, oh, no, 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 we've got the factory and the land, uh, and we start to build something else on it. And this is a bit tough um, on the banks. So in my view, the indicator of non-performing loans, you need to think about in a somewhat different way than you would if you saw it on the balance sheet of a British bank or an American bank. If you saw a high non-performing loan figure on the balance sheet of Bank of Scotland, you would know that Bank of Scotland had lousy credit control and was making poor loans. Uh, in fact, in China, it's somewhat different. Firstly, because a lot of the loans were politically driven anyway and influenced by uh, local governments, municipal governments, uh, the party officials in different provinces, uh, but also because often the banks were deprived of the ability of recovering the assets on which these loans were notionally secured. It's also important to note, I think, um, that while we typically outside China look at the Chinese growth rate sailing onwards at 10% a year, and we tend to think of the whole of China growing at 10% a year. Of course, within that, there have been companies that have grown at 50% a year and many companies that have gone bust. Most of these were state-owned enterprises. And the question was really, where do the losses of this hugely rapid economic growth, where do they sit? Now, it's, in my view, rather an accounting question rather than an economic question where these loans appear. I mean, you could simply take them off the balance sheets of the banks and say, well, that's a government loss because there was a government-owned company, the government's lost the money, and it appears on public spending. But interestingly, in China, in spite of the political environment being somewhat different from what it is in the UK, the government actually acknowledging these losses and taking it on the government's balance sheet was something which they didn't want to do. And so in many cases, they sat on the bank's balance sheets looking like bad loans made by bankers, uh, whereas in fact they were loans directed by one part of the government to be made to another part of the government, which then went bust and then were not acknowledged as government liabilities. Now gradually, however, the Chinese government have acknowledged this. And clearly, um, they have now put serious money behind doing so. Uh, the worst of the loans have been moved to asset management companies, what we would often in the West call bad banks. Um, and the idea is that those loans would then be sold off at 20 cents in the dollar. Um, in fact, rather curiously, um, some other state-owned Chinese companies have now been buying bad debts off the asset management companies. This is Alice in Wonderland territory. Um, with the government taking bad debts off one state-owned bank, putting it into a state-owned asset management company, which packages it up and sells it to another state-owned bank. I mean, you really have to ask yourself what is going on there, because the original idea of this was to sell these to foreign investors who were prepared to take a, a risk on them. But that's been done, and also, in my view, rather more healthily, uh, the capital injections have been put into these banks. I mean, $15 billion uh, of real hard dollars were put into ICBC uh, to strengthen its capitalization. There's also been some enhancement of recovery rates as the banks have been given title to the property of some companies to which they've lent. And also, 
there are now more restrictions on political lending. Uh, government says that there is no more political lending. Uh, I'm entitled to be a little bit sceptical of that as a blanket observation, uh, but nonetheless, um, that's the rhetoric at the moment. The second point, I said, was bringing in um, overseas partners. And if you look at uh, what's happened uh, so far, the Agricultural Bank uh, doesn't um, have a girlfriend, uh, but the others uh, do. In fact, uh, since I did this, Goldman Sachs have bought a piece of ICBC. Um, they have Allianz and Amex as shareholders as well. The Bank of China has got the Royal Bank of Scotland, Merrill Lynch, uh, Li Ka-shing Foundation, and uh, UBS. Uh, and China Construction Bank has got uh, Bank of America and Temasek, the Singaporean government's uh, holding company. And Bank of Communications, which is the other one outside the big four that's significant, um, HSBC have got a 20% stake. Now, some people ask just what these stakes really amount to. And I think it's been quite interesting that overseas banks have been prepared to take small stakes in huge Chinese banks. This is something they would never consider in another country. You know, had the Romanian foreign minister, finance minister, called up the Bank of America and said, by the way, would you like to buy 8% of one of my banks? You'll never be able to buy 51% of it. Um, we won't give you any control. The 90% shareholder will continue to appoint all of the board members. Now, before you got to the end of that sentence, the phone would be down. There would be nobody prepared to invest in a foreign bank on that basis. And yet, foreign banks have been prepared to take this kind of stake in Chinese banks. Small stakes, which will always remain minority stakes because it's pretty inconceivable, I would say, that the Chinese government will be prepared to sell 51% of the Bank of China uh, to anybody. Are they mad uh, to do this? Well, there is a serious school of thought which says that they are and that they are prey to the famous delusion um, that the British had when we started trading with China in the 19th century. There's a famous uh, quote from um, a uh, British uh, minister who went on one of these missions to the emperor to try to persuade them to open up China. Uh, and fascinated by the numbers, he said, if we could only persuade that every Chinaman to lengthen his shirt tail by six inches, we would keep the spinning mills of Lancashire going for a generation. And this was this wonderful notion that somehow an unimaginable size of the market was one you simply had to be involved in. And it would seem that the logic is that you can't be out of this market. So the biggest banks and otherwise hard-nosed institutions like HSBC, Bank of America, have been prepared to put their money on the table. Will this work out? Well, I suspect that they will never get majority shares. However, it may well be that they will set up joint ventures. And I think that would be actually the rational strategy for HSBC or Royal Bank of Scotland or Bank of America, would be to pick off those areas of banking which the Chinese don't have good expertise in, things like credit cards or leasing, both areas where you need 
quite good technology and particular systems to operate. Uh, and I suspect that you know, 50-50 leasing subsidiary joint venture uh, with a foreign partner by one of these banks you know, could well be something that Chinese authorities would be prepared to uh, envisage. So it may be that these are rational investments, but they're certainly very big punts at the moment uh, with no obvious uh, strategy for getting the money back uh, or indeed uh, for uh, getting uh, a significant ownership stake. And furthermore, these banks are putting in large numbers of people. In HSBC, you've got at least 100 um, senior people in the bank of communications working full-time with I mean, scarce resources uh, which they are using to upgrade that bank's uh, systems. Then, of course, uh, after the cleaning up the balance sheets, the bringing in the strategic partners, the third leg of the strategy is the IPOs. Uh, and we've seen uh, in the last year China Construction Bank, uh, 9.2 billion uh, US taking, in, uh, taking place in Hong Kong. The Bank of China did 10 billion uh, US in Hong Kong with a further follow-on $3 billion issue in Shanghai. And ICBC, we don't know precisely, but I think these may be underestimates, about 16 billion in Hong Kong and probably another 5.8 is what they've currently said, but it may well be more than that now, given the frenzy I talked about uh, at the beginning. So really, that is the current uh, strategy, uh, cleaning up the balance sheet, bringing in strategic partners to improve the skill base of the institutions and uh, selling a certain amount um, overseas in order to generate kind of corporate governance pressure. But will this work? Uh, is this uh, enough? Well, I would argue that it isn't, that it's a good step, uh, but it's almost certainly not enough, and that without some further changes, um, it's unlikely to deliver a financial system which is adequate for the next stage of China's growth. Because in itself, it does not do two things. One, it does not create much in the way of competition, and certainly not a new competition. And secondly, it doesn't deal with the issue that I described at the outset of China's excessively heavy reliance on the banks. Indeed, in the very short term, it, it may almost produce the reverse effect of giving these banks more capital and actually let, raising them uh, in terms of the share of the financial system. So the question is, uh, what else needs to be done? Well, uh, as far as competition is concerned, uh, there is, of course, the WTO framework. And by the end of this year, China is supposed to be a full member of the WTO. And China did make some quite major commitments in terms of opening up the financial system. In fact, it made commitments beyond what it was absolutely required to do with the WTO framework. And uh, in theory, by the end of this year, um, renminbi business will be open to all foreign banks uh, in China, and that the previous rather curious system of opening up the renminbi market city by city, which is a rather odd uh, arrangement, um, in theory that should not uh, take place. Now, what will be the implications for foreign banks well, in theory, uh, foreign banks will get national treatment. That is a condition of uh, WTO entry. 
they will be allowed to conduct renminbi business, uh, but it's likely that there will be some restrictions. The Chinese are very keen to use this new entry by foreign banks to get them to establish branches essentially in places where they don't want to go. Um, I mean, at the moment, the foreign banks really want to establish branches in Shanghai and Guangdong and Shenzhen and Beijing, uh, and the Chinese want to use the foreign bank's entry as part of their uh, Western development strategy and in the Northeast. So if you are here from a foreign bank and you want to establish a huge operation in Dalian or somewhere way out in the West, then you'll be welcomed, uh, and perhaps a bit less so if you want to join everybody else in Shanghai. And in theory, there will be common regulatory standards. But frankly, uh, it's going to take a lot of time for foreign banks to make much impact on the market, in my view. I think they will remain quite small uh, for a while. I suspect that foreign banks will become increasingly important in financing overseas multinationals in China where they have a natural client base. But I don't think that foreign banks on their own are going to make a huge impact on the competitive environment for the big four. Uh, I mean, if you think back to what I said that ICBC's got 18,000 branches, how many branches are HSBC going to have in China in five or even ten years' time when they've got three at the moment? I mean, it's not going to be uh, a rapid process, in my view. So, uh, although the arrival of foreign banks on the WTO framework will be helpful, be helpful at the margin and certainly helpful in relation to some products, uh, I think there's still quite a lot more to do um, for the Chinese themselves. And the first area is further strengthening of the banking system. And in my view, uh, fundamental banking industry reform is far from complete. Um, the state-owned banks still do have um, larger uh, non-performing loans than would be typical in other places. I mean, 5% is fine after 27%, but a British bank with 1% NPLs uh, would be looking a bit shaky. Uh, so even now, they are still way above what a Western bank would normally expect uh, to have. And so... It's very important that they press on with upgrading management, with improving risk management in particular, adopting risk-based pricing. Now, that's one of those things, point three on a list of five on a slide of three points, but actually it's a very fundamental point in China because up to now, the People's Bank have in fact constrained spreads to a very narrow range uh, in China. They recently widen those spreads a little bit, but until about a year ago, the maximum spread in China was about 1.5% between your best credit and your worst credit. In those circumstances, to persuade banks to invest a lot of time in credit control, risk management, when you can't translate the consequences of that into risk-based pricing um, is a bit of a waste of time. So establishing these differentials um, is very important. But of course, it carries some interesting implications because, of course, many of the companies uh, they're lending to, still most of them, are state-owned. So in allowing a different spread, what are you saying? You know, some are more state-owned than others. 
uh, are you saying we're not backing these, we're not backing those? The experience is that China has not backed all its state-owned enterprises in relation to the banks. It hasn't actually paid the non-performing loans, even from state-owned enterprises. So in effect, there is a marketplace. But adopting this widening pricing is a very explicit acknowledgement um, that you know all state-owned companies are equal, but some are a lot more equal than others. And so it's quite a big step to allow this risk-based pricing to develop. But nonetheless, that's important. And implementing proper incentive systems, also important, and also gets at the whole question of uh, whether uh, banks, or how flexible their pay systems uh, can be. You know, how do you introduce bonus systems, etc.? And interestingly, China's moved quite a long way in this. Um, the FSA, and even the regulators, the FSA, for example, has a bonus system. The SEC, it is completely inconceivable. The Congress would not allow a bonus system in the SEC. The CBRC has a bonus system too, rather modelled on the, on the uh, FSA. So interestingly, they're beginning to introduce incentives uh, within the financial system, even at the regulator, but nonetheless, this is a cultural change which is quite uh, difficult. Clearly, more work on the NPLs is obvious, and um, a reduced further reduction of the influence of uh, governments on lending policies. I mean, in the past, lending by Chinese banks was essentially formula-based on a kind of geographical uh, basis and a sort of industry sectoral basis. Uh, and that has clearly got to go if you have banks which are genuinely commercial. And just to remind you that in spite of all of the money that the Chinese have put in and in spite of the IPOs, um, if you look at what Moody says uh, about them, um, it's not so pretty uh, that um, ICBC uh, on the latest Moody's rating is still uh, an, e, an E plus, um, which is not very pretty. Um, on the whole, you wouldn't want to lend uh, or buy shares in an E-plus bank. I mean, there's never been an E-plus bank in the UK, I don't think. Uh, but um, uh, on, oh, that's an overall measure of financial strength, you know, which takes account of the NPLs, etc. I mean, if you look at their long-term rates, you know, it's not too bad. Uh, it's, an, it's an A2. Uh, I mean, I can go into the... Uh, I haven't really got time to go into the detail of all of these things, but ultimately, uh, the financial strength one is, is, is the more important one, really. So there's clearly quite a bit to be done here in terms of strengthening the uh, financial position of the Chinese banks. And also, of course, as I said, China's banks still are the primary channel for corporate financing and have very limited ability to lay off risks outside the banking system. I mean, when I talk to uh, audiences of bankers uh, in the UK and you ask people, well, how good would your credit systems be, your credit appraisals be, if you had no share price to look at and you had no bond prices to look at. The banks have got to do all the work in assessing the quality of Chinese corporates. And that's a tough job. You know, most credit departments in banks, they spend their time looking at the Moody's rating, at the bond price and at the share price, and those give them the big clues as to what's going on in, in companies. In China, the banks have got to do all the work, and that's not good enough. And there are also some issues on uh, regulation for the Chinese to uh, address. I don't want to go into those in too much detail tonight, but 
the Chinese are gradually moving towards what we call universal banking, uh, with the banks getting into the securities business and banks and insurers wish to get into each other's business, currently not allowed, but a lot of discussion about it. Um, and as soon as that happens, then you have to think about your regulatory system. <coughs> At the moment, China's regulatory system is uh, divided into three. But I would say that the biggest issues are really probably cultural. I've already talked about the credit focus, uh, not formula lending allocations. But also, and I think this point is that these two points are much less well understood in China than the others where uh, audiences in China, Chinese bankers would have nodded a lot so far. But I think the Chinese still don't really understand how the Western financial system is, as it were, kept honest. And it, it's built on a series of creative tensions. Anyone who's worked in a bank knows that there is a kind of inbuilt tension between the lending officers and the terrible credit guys back at head office. You know, the lending officers are going around looking for exciting new companies, looking for opportunities to lend money, and then they say, I've got this brilliant idea, you know, there's this brilliant entrepreneur called Lawrence Sykes, he's got this fantastic idea, he wants a million pounds from us, and they ask, send up the thing, and the credit people say, well, you know, where's he worked before? He's an academic, you can't be serious lending him money. Um, you know, what is his track record? Uh, is he prepared to put his house down? Uh, no, his house is in his wife's name. Oh, hell. And, and then answers no. And the lending guy is furious about this. And a, that's the whole way in which banks are built, this creative tension. Um, and then between banks and their external auditors, uh, with the external auditors coming in and saying, hang on, you know, you have not adequately provided for your non-performing loans. These loans, you're saying they're performing, but actually... You know, the interest has not been fully paid and the interest has been delayed and etc. Uh, and, you know, that creative tension is there. It's meant to be. And then between the banks and their regulators. The problem in China is, going back to my slide of the whole system, that it is still a system of a large sort of chessboard on which parts are moved around, pieces are moved around. And one year someone is working in Agricultural Bank of China. The next year, they've been moved to the CBRC. A couple of years later, they've been moved to the People's Bank. And what you're not generating as a result is the kind of institutional loyalties that the system is built on, that a dynamic system is built on. Now, some of us in uh, the West are sometimes, and I have to say I'm one, somewhat cynical about institutional loyalties. You know, those of you who go and look for jobs uh, in financial institutions will have to listen to Deloitte explain why they are completely different from Ernst & Young. And you may scratch your head and wonder at the end of this whether this is really true, but in a certain sense they believe it. You know, and the way you create a good firm is by creating a kind of belief in people and we do it here. You know, we try to convince ourselves that LSE is just much better than UCL. <laughs> In that case, it's, it's obviously true. Uh, but uh, <laughs> we also convince ourselves we're a lot better than Princeton. And that may not be quite so true. But, uh, you know, these institutional loyalties are very important. And at the moment, they don't really exist because these institutions 
haven't had time to build up their institutional identities or indeed to nurture their own staff because many of their senior people certainly have simply been, as it were, posted there um, uh, by some great HR department in the sky which determines where people will go. And this, I think, will take some time. And it's a softer point, but in my view, rather uh, a crucial one. The, after changing the banking system, um, capital market reforms. Now, I'm not going to go into this in as much uh, detail, uh, but it's quite clear that uh, more needs to be done to reform the equity market. Now, the equity market has, in fact, been uh, improving quite recently. And if you look at what's gone on um, in the Shanghai versus the uh, uh, Mumbai market, although the Mumbai market is still called the BSE, as in Bombay, um, then actually um, Shanghai has picked up quite a lot um, in the last uh, 12 months after many years of going really nowhere. So prices have... Uh, improved, which suggests that the government is getting something right. And certainly they have been making a lot of headway. The CSRC has made a lot of headway, selling government shareholdings. One of the big problems with the Chinese, the Shanghai market, was that um, there was a huge share overhang, that the government had floated small proportions of a lot of companies, um, but retained you know, 80% or 70% itself. And so every time the share price rose, the government would try to sell a bit more. Well, this is death, of course, to the market because people think, gosh, you know, there's a big overhang and every time my price, share price rises, the government's going to flood the market with stock and push it back down again. And so this created a big problem and some of the uh, overhang has now been reduced. An investor compensation scheme has been introduced. That was important because many of the brokers are bankrupt and uh, many of them also have been fraudulent in the past. Um, there needed to be much more tough regulation. Uh, in this country, uh, as Lawrence referred to, the uh, people in the market always complain about regulation, uh, but in Shanghai they tend to say the reverse. They want rather tougher uh, enforcement because that is harming the market. And of course, the division between A and B shares has been a dampener on the market because it's created these rather artificial uh, restrictions. Now, not all of these reforms are complete, but I would say that uh, in capital market reforms, uh, the market shows uh, that something is getting better. But that's just the equity market. In the bond market, there's also an awful lot uh, to do. The key thing about bond markets is that... Um, there's got to be some interest in trading them. And so in China, it's all been rather boring because the bonds have all been guaranteed by the state. There have been no rating agencies. There have been no pricing benchmarks. There have been no derivatives. Uh, there have been no secondary markets. And therefore, this has been a very dull proposition. And there haven't been the kind of interest in trading Chinese bonds that there might be. And this is actually, again, quite a difficult concept because... If you issue a bond and explicitly say it's not state guaranteed, then the price will be lower. So in a sense, in the short run, it looks like an irrational thing to do if you can issue with a full state guarantee. But in the long run, you won't create a vibrant market which private entrepreneurs can access 
unless you are prepared to kickstart it with some unguaranteed issues. So this is quite an interesting uh, question, really, whether you, you kind of, it's the government deliberately creating risk, which it doesn't in the short run need to do, but which it may be rational in the long run to do. Uh, but it's on the way, and I think moving reasonably sensibly. And then, of course, there is corporate governance uh, reform. Well, the CSRC has launched, in fact, I helped launch it, uh, a very sensible code of practice on corporate governance, which actually reads quite well. It's an interesting kind of combination of uh, continental European and British uh, approaches. Um, and they have started to introduce independent directors into Chinese companies, um, and the ownership is being distributed to some extent under with IPOs. But of course, there is a limit to how far you can go with a Western-style corporate governance model if you still have a dominant shareholder of you know, 70 or 80 percent of the institution. And it's a limit to the powers of independent directors um, to represent the interests of outside shareholders. So the corporate governance changes have been good, but perhaps not as real as they need to be. And then the third um, and last area of the reform agenda for the future is about regulation. Um, I've referred to the need for tougher enforcement um, in the securities area. Uh, which I think is very important. But at the moment, the Chinese have three regulatory commissions, CBRC, CSRC, CIRC, the insurance one. Um, the first two have international advisory councils. And I think this is quite um, an interesting uh, step. Now, the Chinese are rather clever about this um, because you're hugely flattered to be invited um, and you don't actually get paid, which is very sophisticated uh, approach um, but they do take these uh, councils seriously and interestingly um, they have been much more uh, willing to expose themselves to international scrutiny than most um, other countries would do. In fact I only know of two countries who have uh, foreigners on the boards or, or serious advisory councils of their regulators and that's China and the UK where we have uh, foreigners on the board of the Financial Services Authority. You would not catch anyone in continental Europe doing that. In the U.S., you're joking. Um, you wouldn't, I mean, the U.S. won't even re recruit a foreigner, uh, whereas something like 30% of the FSA staff uh, is foreign. So they are remarkably open by regulatory standards, and that, I think, is hugely to their uh, credit, and much more frank about the uh, strengths and weaknesses of the regulatory system than many other countries um, are. Also, there is a strong commitment now to training, but it probably needs to improve. Uh, at the LSE, we benefit from that since the CSRC and CBRC both send people on uh, degree courses here. Uh, but, of course, the numbers of people involved are enormous. The CBRC has, I think, 35,000 staff, and so the training and training those people in international standards of regulation to understand how to implement Basel capital standards is a monumental uh, exercise and is not going to happen overnight. And then also creating, I won't repeat this point since I've made it, but creating this culture of challenge uh, in the regulator is very important. 
Lastly, um, and I'm somewhat prejudiced on this point because of having set up an integrated regulator in the UK, um, I think that as the Chinese system evolves, they will need to think about regulatory coordination. Uh, in the UK, we solved that problem by going to one single regulator. Quite a number of other countries have followed that. The Chinese have actually said that that's a, a, something on the agenda and that they are uh, thinking about it. Uh, but certainly at the very least, I think, you need a body that promotes cooperation between these three regulators, particularly as the interactions between the three financial sectors, three subsectors of the financial system, um, increase. Finally, uh, let's just look at um, briefly at the implications for the global financial system. I've looked at what's been going on in China so far and what I think needs to happen next. But it's worth just a moment on the implications. I mean, these, new ba these banks coming overseas uh, are huge new competitors with initially regional but, regional, but almost certainly in future global um, ambitions. I mean, if you look at the uh, relative size of these Chinese banks and other Asian banks, I mean, Mizuho uh, is still huge, but ICBC, Bank of China, Construction and Agricultural are all over twice as big as Standard Chartered uh, or DBS or the two big, uh, other big Singaporean banks and, you know, three or four times as big as the State Bank of India. So these are monster new competitors in the region. And once they've got proper capitalization and are able to compete internationally, they are going to uh, make a big difference to competition in those markets. Um, they will be adequately capitalized to operate overseas, I think. I mean, that means meeting the Basel standards, uh, but I think they will have enough capital to do that. They will be supported by knowledge transfer from strategic shareholders, and obviously one of the worries of the competitors is that you know, a bank of communications with a 20% stake from HSBC, which has got leading-edge systems, may come up round the side of some of these other Asian banks uh, pretty quickly. And the risk, of course, also is that they may not be as margin-sensitive as other banks with more demanding shareholders. Uh, I can remember in the uh, 1980s when the Japanese banks were uh, taking all before them. Uh, in 1989... Japanese banks accounted for 27% of the London financial system, of the, of, the, of the whole of the assets of the London banking market. And they were doing huge syndicated loans at one-eighth over LIBOR. You know. um, they were going for market share at the expense of profit. Um, this is a cautionary story because the Chinese share of the London banking, Japanese share of the London banking market, which was 27% in 1989, is now 4%. And this has been an absolutely massive boom and bust by the Japanese. And the Chinese, in my view, need to avoid doing that and need to think about profit uh, and not just uh, market share. But the other way around, there will be new openings in China for foreign institutions, I think, with targeted competitive offerings. As I said earlier, I think that the, the smartest strategy for overseas banks in China will be to identify niches where their technological advantage and their human capital advantage gives them a real competitive edge in the market and not trying to compete head for head with these huge institutions with enormous networks. 
So, in conclusion, what's been going on is really a remarkable exercise in restructuring a financial system. And for that reason, I think it's particularly fascinating uh, to watch how it evolves because the scale is absolutely enormous, both in money terms, but also in terms of the cultural shifts that need to be introduced in order to generate a financial system. And I would argue that it is much harder to generate a financial system to rival Western financial systems than it is to generate a manufacturing industry to rival Western systems. It is a completely different challenge in terms of the soft capital structures that are required. I think the Chinese made uh, quite a poor start right at the beginning because they claimed too much too soon. And they constructed these big four banks and said, well, they've been pieces of the People's Bank carved out, and that's now called the China Construction Bank, and it's a commercial bank. Well, it wasn't, because it didn't have, apart from the name and a, and a balance sheet, it didn't have the structures and the disciplines that was needed, and, of course, it didn't have uh, capital. So that was a bad start, um, but they have recovered from that, and restructured them in a reasonably sensible way and recapitalized them, which was necessary, so that they now are able to attract uh, frenzied Hong Kong uh, investors, but also some pretty hard-nosed strategic partners as well. There is now, in relation to the big four, or there has been, a clear strategy. But I would argue that is now, if you like, coming to an end. The strategy of recapitalizing, bringing in strategic partners, floating small stakes on IPOs, that's fine. Uh, but now what? Uh, where do you go from there? What do you allow those strategic partners to do? How far do you want them to sell stakes? How um, open to further IPOs are you going to be? Can you envisage a time when the government owns less than 51%? Those are all very big questions uh, which have still to be answered. Um, there's going to be a new financial conference in China, which happens every two or three years, where these big financial issues are debated. And, of course, uh, next year there will be a new government. And I think there will be a need for a recommitment to a new strategy, because the last one has been valid for the last five years. It's been pursued uh, with some uh, determination and some success. Uh, but now people are starting to ask questions about what next, and there aren't currently any clear answers to those questions. And I think the next phase of introducing real competition and introducing creative tension within the system will be uh, the biggest test. And in that sense, I think, the financial system will be a microcosm of China as a whole how possible will it be to introduce the kind of creative tensions into the financial system which our financial system, the US, others in Europe, etc., have discovered is necessary in order uh, to create a dynamic financial marketplace. So that, I think, that cultural question is going to be the most interesting one. And 
We're going to see whether that's going to be addressed over the next year. And the fourth lecture in this series, this time next year, we'll see how far that's gone, and I'll see you same place, same time. Thank you. Uh, th thank you so much for, for this uh, very interesting uh, uh, panorama of China's uh, financial system. Uh, Howard Davis will be here to answer some questions and uh, have some, some basic caveats or rules of, of law here to, to stress. First, uh, I guess the, the first one is that the, um, you have to wait for somebody to give you a microphone so that everybody can hear your question. Uh, the other issue is um, the, the, um, the lecture itself will be uh, podcast um, uh, sometime later on this term. Hopefully, they will also include some of the slides because they're actually quite interesting, especially some of the data is quite unusual, uh, at least uh, and very clearly presented in, in this lecture. Uh, and then finally, I have one specific request. Uh, normally, for this type of events, people like to ask three or four questions, and I think that we should maintain a, a one question policy rather than okay. a one child policy rather than the one child policy it's a one question policy give us it really makes no sense and yes pick the best one we want quality not quantity and so please um, I'll start I'll, I'll take three uh, pairs of threes uh, one two Well, uh, thanks for that very inspiring uh, speech. Okay, uh, just now, the uh, director mentioned uh, about the creative tension. Uh, well, just uh, wondering, uh, just from the perspective of regulator, uh, how can uh, a financial regulator help you know, the, the uh, financial players, right, the banks, or uh, to create, uh, have that kind of creative uh, tension? Okay, I know. Uh, how the FSA, uh, you know, uh, do in this respect? Can you just give us some yeah, advice or opinions? Thank you. Yeah. Yes, that's what oh, you yeah. wanted. Yes. My question is uh, the economic and uh, financial uh, uh, reform or uh, uh, liberalization is the new phenomenon. Uh, it's been eclipsed, um, it's eclipsing the, the political reform. And do you think that's going to pose any constraint in the future? And then to what extent, if that's the case, would, would, would it be like the economic and uh, financial liberalization uh, sustainable? There's a question uh, with the uh, late, yeah, the, the one with the, no, over there. Um, hi. Um, could you please just elaborate more on um, the prospects for Chinese banks opening branches here in London? Um, and my specific question is that how would this be achieved given that the Chinese banks are not particularly well positioned for international competition? Thank you. All right. Uh, we start with those three. He'll answer, and then we'll go on to the next round. Okay. Um, on the first one, how the financial regulators can help with the creative tension. Well, I think there are two things that they can do. Uh, one is, of course, that they have to be sharp uh, with the banks themselves. And that axis of creative tension is something the regulators can themselves create. And they can be challenging. I mean, you can be challenging without being destructive. And I think the CBRC and the CSRC need to be 
uh, reasonably aggressive with their, with, with their banks. The second thing is that um, the approach that's taken to uh, regulation in the UK um, is that the regulator typically focuses on systems and processes within the institution. Uh, in some other countries, and this is true to some extent in the US actually, uh, regulators tend to focus looking at assessments of individual loans, etc. In this country, we don't do that particularly. What we do is focus on this, these networks within the institution and look at whether there is a process of challenge between lending officers and credit. So we would, forget, for example, go in and say, you know, how often do our lending proposals by this branch turn down by the credit department? And if they say never, we say, well, just a minute. <laughs> what is going on here? Because clearly the, you know, the bank shouldn't really be operating in, in that way. The credit people must be sometimes <laughs> saying no. So I think that a systems approach looking at strengthening the position of the credit appraisal departments and the risk managers is the thing that the regulators should focus on. And I think they can do quite a lot to generate these creative tensions by doing that. Second question, well, yeah, you put your question very differently, but it's the $64,000 question, really. Uh, there's an interesting book recently uh, by a man called Bruce Gilley, who's actually coming to speak next week. Uh, and you can go and put the question to him on the 24th uh, because he's written a book called China's Democratic Future uh, which itself gives you an idea of what it's about um, and he uh, points out in that book that if you monitor, if you plot uh, countries um, on a scale and, and if you have sort of economic liberalization on one axis and political liberalization on the other axis that China is now currently in a place where you're not supposed to be able to be um, in that it's very difficult to find a previous example of a country which has had this much economic liberalization but with so little political uh, liberalization. Now, of course, <clears throat> I wouldn't want to give you a kind of historicist answer to this and say there's some inevitable movement because clearly China is in very many respects different from many other developing countries. The Chinese experience with liberal political systems is very short and not very successful uh, in the past. But certainly uh, the question of uh, how this, these financial um, and economic uh, liberalizations will create demand for more involvement in uh, policy making is, is a very interesting one. I mean, the Chinese say that at the local level they are beginning to do that and beginning to introduce uh, certain democratic processes, but I'm afraid I couldn't really answer that. My own view is um, that what I can do to promote financial liberalization in China is useful, um, and where that leads in political terms is a matter the Chinese themselves will have to work out. Now, as far as the branches in London, uh, well, I think we should make a bid for a branch um, of ICBC on Houghton Street. Uh, couldn't be much less efficient than that West, could it? So um, I think um, we... But I think, actually, that um, there will be quite um, a natural marketplace for Chinese banks up to a certain point. Um, so far, uh, Bank of China have been in London... Well, 
and Bank of China have been in London since 1929, uninterrupted, with actually the same guy in charge from 1930 till 2004, a <laughs> um, uh, He was the great survivor, I can tell you, in political, <laughs> political terms. Um, and uh, they have focused on trade finance uh, and financing some Chinese corporates, uh, local business in the UK, and providing services to the overseas Chinese community. Um, ICBC came in uh, three years ago um, with a subsidiary which has had a similar kind of strategy. I mean, I suspect that they will, for the foreseeable future, focus on trade finance um, between China and the UK, on dealing with the activities of Chinese corporates based in Europe, um, of which there will probably be a growing number, I would think, and to some extent the local Chinese community. I doubt if they'll be huge, uh, but I think there is a niche uh, which is perfectly accessible for them, and I suspect that's what they will uh, seek to consolidate first. All right, uh, next round of questions. There was one here. One, two, three. If you're up uh, on the peanut gallery up there uh, and you want to ask a question, make sure that you, you I can't really see on the, uh, on the back here, so, so you have to move up in front and then wave your hand. So you go first. Yes, <coughs> considering the different um, market segments, historical culture of U.S. and U.K., would you see a prospect of a super regulator emerging in China and would you personally due to your um, previous post advocate a super regulator in China thank you there was one in the back uh, yeah Mr. Blue or t-shirt over there yeah thank you Mr. Davis um, I understand the Chinese government set up four or five asset management, asset management companies to deal with uh, uh, non-performing loans and some worse loans and uh, I understand cleaning uh, non-performing loans has, uh, is a difficult task and has some way to go. But my question is, do you expect the Chinese government to kind of extend a new role for those asset companies, or do you see them uh, to disappear once, the, once they complete their mission? Thank you. Okay. Uh, blue shirt at the end. Hi. Uh, we've got a Chinese government at the moment that's very proud of the fact that it's managed to persuade the banks to increase their lending to agriculture uh, and also using window guidance. So very clearly sort of uh, keen on direct instruction of the banking sector of how to go. Um, how do you see sort of the reforms progressing under the current administration and under the administration that's going to be in power in 2007? Um, and can you talk perhaps a bit about the different forces within the Chinese government, say the uh, CBRC, uh, the People's Bank of China, and the actual sort of uh, government itself? Okay. Um, I'll take those in reverse order. On the first, uh, on the third one, uh, the, I think the views of the regulatory community, and I think this would include the People's Bank, um, and these would be views that, that are fairly much shared uh, by regulators around the world, is that um, it's important to try to disentangle lending which is explicitly for development purposes, where you are not doing it because you think it's the most profitable thing to lend to. You're doing it for social reasons. 
should be explicitly categorized as such and preferably rooted through a different institution. Um, and so the, the policy banks, you know, where there is an agricultural development bank, you know, the regulators think that's just great, let's do it through there, but do not mix up in the same institution loans which are clearly made for a non-commercial purpose with loans that are made for a commercial purpose because if you do that then you find that it becomes subsequently very difficult to identify the one from another and the institutions get to feel well it doesn't really matter uh, because they will get bailed out by some government uh, enterprise um, in the end. So I think what the general thrust of uh, the regulators would be try to make your funding of agricultural development or uh, development in the west of China or you know, infrastructure out to the west, etc. Make that explicitly social lending um, and not mix it up with the commercial balance sheets. Um, now that's obviously quite difficult to do and we've experienced the same sort of problems here. You know, governments don't like to make those things explicit. They sometimes like to, to mix them up. But I think that would be the general view in the regulatory community and in the People's Bank. Asset management companies, whether they will have a new role, I don't know. That's an interesting question. I mean, I, my own view would be that, um, the, that asset management companies you know, are very specialised institutions um, which, if they're successful, are successful for two reasons. Um, one, because they have a single-minded focus on debt recovery. Um, and uh, in banks, I mean, the, the reason for doing it, putting it in an asset management company, is that you know, banks who've had a relationship with a company often find it difficult to be as hard-nosed as they should be in recovery once they have given up the idea of further lending and they, you sometimes find, you know, even in this country find you know, one bit of a bank is lending money to some, uh, where another bit of the bank is trying to recover it, you know, it can be a bit confusing. So the real key to an asset management company is its single-minded focus on debt recovery and realisation and it doesn't have to worry about long-term relationships with that client because it hasn't got any, you know, it's got a single-minded focus and the second thing that, it, that they're good at is if you like, debt structuring and structuring sort of packages of debt. You know, that's another reason why you might construct asset management companies and bad banks rather than leave it on the balance sheets of, of uh, existing banks is because they can then perhaps put together packages of debt, you know, which if you construct uh, them might be more saleable than individual debts would be. But I think that they, you know, those are the two strategies of asset management companies. Now, it, you know, maybe they'd be good at trading distressed debt. You know, I think they might be good at that. That's rather compatible with the second role. Uh, but I would hope that they weren't given a new role in actually, you know, producing new loans or whatever, and not become kind of crypto banks themselves. I hope that, that they remain in that rather focused mode. The super regulator point. Well, um, the logic um, in my mind is that. Uh, your regulatory structure should follow the structure of your financial system. And that in countries where banks, securities firms, insurance companies, asset managers are divided up and not allowed to do each other's business, 
then the case for a super regulator is not particularly strong. As soon as you move to a position where you allow banks to own securities firms and vice versa and you allow bank assurance to develop, then I think there's an awful lot to be said for a single regulator uh, and particularly also when you allow uh, debt to be traded. You know, so in this market, you know, banks issue debt and sometimes before the company's got the money, they've securitized it and lent it to an insurance company. You know, so sold it to an insurance company. So actually, if you want to follow risk around the system, you really need the view of the, of the system as a whole. I think, therefore, that uh, if the Chinese continue their moves towards more liberalization, then the issue of a single regulator will arise. The, the one caution that you'd have to have in China is that you know, the chairman of the Chinese FSA would be a very important woman indeed. Um, and whether the Chinese system you know, could easily cope with that is a difficult question. I mean, this is a more of a kind of cultural and sort of feel question. I mean, here, you can just about get away with a chairman of the FSA because, you know, we've got a board with non-executives and we've got a parliamentary committee that summons the person in and beats them around the head frequently. And we've got a very active press, you know, the Financial Times reports what you do every day. You know. And so the kind of checks and balances are such that a chairman of the FSA here doesn't seem an impossible, impossibly powerful figure. I think the problem in China is, you know, do you have all those other checks and balances working as well as you'd need? Um, and also, the, there's probably a lot of discretion still in the Chinese system, much more discretion than there is in the British system. So I think the Chinese might hesitate a bit uh, before they introduce... Um, a single regulator because of this sort of danger of being of creating something which is too powerful for its own good. Uh, do you mind if, if we... Uh, 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 um, well, I, I've said to them exactly what I've said to you, really, which is that the logic of the financial system pushes you, I think, towards a single regulator, but that if you set one up, you would need to be sure that there were structures of accountability in place uh, and challenge in place to that person you know, which, uh, w with which you were comfortable. And I, I think they understand that very well, actually. All right, we'll go uh, for the last round of questions. There was a black T-shirt question back there. Uh, yes, you. Uh, don't. Uh, okay, good. Oh, thank you. Uh, my question is a risk to the uh, invest the, the big four in China. Um, now the, uh, the big four is state-owned. So nobody would think they will be bankrupt. But uh, even if they are private, uh, maybe they are too big to fail. Uh, having said that, do you think uh, you recognize any risk to invest the money to the big four in long term, short term? Uh, you have to raise your hand again because I don't have perfect memory for these things. I know there was one here. Uh, okay, there was somebody here. Uh, I'll go there. Thanks. Um, Howard, I'm just interested to know if you've got any views about the outlook for the fund management industry in China as well. Thanks. Last one. Make it a good one. Uh, okay. I, 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 yeah, I couldn't see you. So I'm, I'm going I'm to exercise privilege here. This gentleman here. Yeah. Uh, seriously speaking, uh, 
if you want to make investment, do you want to buy the shares of Chinese companies? All right. Um, I'm a very risk-averse investor, really. Um, uh, that's why I was a regulator. Um, uh, so um, I think I think at this point, I would still say that um, there's quite a lot of. Uh, for, for my for, for my personal preferences, the protections for minority shareholders in China are not well-developed enough. Um, and uh, I think um, there needs to be quite a bit more progress in that area, developing the role of uh, non-executive directors, etc., um, for them to be investments that you would be happy to advise your uh, great aunts to get into. Uh, so I think Chinese stocks are still, you know, for the fairly adventurous investor at this point. Now, you know, emerging, an emerging market fund with a decent Chinese weight in it, you know, that's uh, something that I'd be reasonably comfortable with. But individual stock picks in China, um, for me at the moment, I think would be um, you know, more adventurous than I'd personally uh, want to be. The fund management industry is um, a, very interesting, um, a very interesting question indeed. And um, I'm afraid there, there's, really, there's only really a good long answer to that. Um, I mean, one of the points that I just make very briefly is that um, the Chinese financial system has up to now been uh, designed very much with the borrowers in mind and not the depositors. <laughs> um, and the... The, the returns, uh, interest rates offered to depositors in Chinese banks have been very low, and the investment opportunities available to individual Chinese savers have been very limited and restricted indeed. As the Chinese population ages, which is happening quite fast actually, uh, as a result of partly of the one-child policy and other, other things too, um, and as the Chinese savings rate is remarkably high, you know, something like 45% of GDP, there's now becoming quite a lot more pressure in China for the government to liberalize the savings opportunities that are available. You know, if you're saving a large amount of your income and all you can do is put it in the bank and earn 2%, you know, it's not very exciting, really. So there is starting to be much more domestic pressure for more interesting savings and investment opportunities for... Uh, individual investors and I would think that uh, before too long uh, the government will need to consider more liberalization of the domestic investment market which will almost certainly involve more opportunities for fund managers um, and of course the big question is how far are you prepared to allow Chinese to invest um, in, overseas as a reciprocal for allowing foreign investors into China. So I've no privileged knowledge at all about when these changes will happen, but I would just say, looking at the logic of it, that the logic points to liberalization in this area and to allowing people to come in and offer more interesting investment products for Chinese uh, families, which I think will happen. Um, lastly, the, the big four... Uh, too big to fail and all that. Well, um, interestingly, uh, there are several countries in the world um, 
where there are four or five big banks. The UK is one, Canada's another, Australia's another, um, where people say, oh, they're too big to fail. Um, now, obviously, when I was a regulator, I would never say that Barclays Bank was too big to fail because you don't want to give them the comfort of thinking that they can do what they like. Um, and in any case, um, of course, even if they're too big to fail in one sense, in that you can't imagine, it's hard to imagine Barclays simply not being able to credit personal checks. You know, I, I can't believe that could happen. But nonetheless, um, bondholders in Barclays could lose a lot of money and shareholders in Barclays could lose everything. I don't think that's impossible. I think a big bank could go bust in the sense of its shares being worthless, although I suspect its network and its personal, its individual customer liabilities would be picked up and here we have a deposit protection scheme which would, which would do that. So I would see um, over time it being perfectly possible in China to move towards a position in which there was a limited deposit insurance scheme, which is what we have here. So people's deposits were not 100% guaranteed. Um, and of course, and there were actively traded bonds in Chinese banks and actively traded shares, which is happening already. So the question then of, you know, it's often I think this too big to fail question is put in too much of a stark point. You know, if you, if you say, could you imagine a world in which the Bank of China completely closes its doors from one day to the next? Well, no. But could you imagine a world in which lenders to the Bank of China, big depositors in the Bank of China, shells in the Bank of China lost money? I think, yes, you could imagine such a world. So I think it's perfectly possible to evolve towards a more competitive um, marketplace uh, than one where everything is, uh, is state guaranteed. And I think it would be possible to do more of that, even within you know, an overall state uh, ownership structure. Uh, thank you. On that optimistic note, uh, I'd like to thank the audience for their participation. Good questions, and thank Howard Davis for his talk. Thank you. <laughs>